This is Raven Debriefs, and I'm your host, Susan Smitten. For our third episode in our Indigenous Foodways series, we welcome a celebrated author, distinguished professor emeritus, and outstanding botanist. Hello, I'm Nancy Turner. I'm a botanist and ethnobotanist. I've lived here in British Columbia since I was five years old, and uh, I've spent most of my life really as a student of plants and people, learning from the First Nations here in British Columbia about the importance of plants and habitats and, and the importance of language and culture related to the land. We invited Nancy Turner on the show to share her perspectives from the decades of work she's done traveling around the Canadian West, writing dozens of books and articles, and cultivating friendships with Indigenous knowledge keepers. I've learned from some amazing elders and teachers and knowledge holders, and I'm so grateful to all of them for what they've shared with me. And I've done my best over the years that I've worked to share that knowledge with others in a good way, in a way that upholds the knowledge holders and um, their wisdom. This is a show about the intersection of Indigenous and colonial legal systems. Our organization, RAVEN, exists to provide access to justice for Indigenous peoples who take to the courts to uphold their stewardship responsibilities. We fundraise for strategic legal challenges that enshrine ecological protection into law. Find out more at raventrust.com. Well, I'm no expert in law, but, uh, but I, I see all kinds of connections there in terms of land and access to land and the way we treat other species and Indigenous law and, and uh, also Western law and how the two don't always coincide. We began by asking Nancy Turner what foods would have been on a spring menu in pre-colonial days in Canada's West. Spring is a time around this part of the world where there are not very many fresh foods. The harvest season is just starting. And sometimes it was a time of shortage because people were always careful to store their food for winter. But if for some reason those food stores were destroyed or or something happened, this time of year could be a time of fairly serious shortage when people fell back on some of the plant foods, actually. So if you know your land, you know where the plants are growing, even if they haven't appeared yet. You can go and find the bulbs, for example, of the yellow glacier lily up in the subalpine area. You can clear away the snow patches and you can find the, the bulbs. You know where the patches of bracken are and you can dig down and gather the the long starchy rhizomes and they have to be baked and pounded into flour, but that was, that would be a food that you could access at this time of year. In the interior, my friend Annie York 
talked about a time of famine about this time of year when the first spring salmon are just coming up the Fraser River around this time. But if they were late and if there were no deer, sometimes people survived on the uh, prickly pear cactus, which you can find in patches if you know where to look for it under the snow. You can bake it or roast it over the fire and the inside part the elders tell me it's, it tastes like green gauge plums. Annie York, my friend at Spasm, said during that time of famine, everyone, even the babies, lived on the cactus. That's if there is a food shortage. If, if things are sort of normal in terms of the season, this would be the time. And people looked at the stars and the moon and they could tell when the time was that, that the Ulican were starting to run up the rivers or that the herring were starting to lay their eggs. And so this would be a time when people would be out on the water harvesting the herring eggs on kelp or putting hemlock boughs in the water to get the herring eggs. The fish and seafood, clams, cockles, the very beginning of the seaweed Harvesting the winter seaweed would be available on the coast. And the very early spring, spring greens. So pretty soon we're going to have um, the cow parsnip will be coming up. The uh, wild celery or kachmin will be coming up. The sprouts of the thimbleberry and the salmonberry will be coming up. And those are ones that everyone looked forward to harvesting. And that, that was like a, a really welcome food because living off stored food in the wintertime, you know, people would really welcome the fresh greens and the fireweed shoots, that kind of thing. And you could also go down to the tidal marsh gardens and you could get the roots of the springbank clover just before they start to sprout. And they're right now they're just sprouting because I have some growing in my, here in, in a planting box. And uh, silverweed roots and camas bulbs you could get at this time of year if you wanted. They're just starting to sprout now. So there's lots of options for springtime food, but you have to know where to go and you have to be prepared to be, I guess, innovative in the foods that you get. Turner combines a botanist's understanding of classification and an ethnographer's attunement to human culture. Here, she reveals the intricacies of interspecies dynamics that form the basis of Indigenous peoples' deep affinity to the lands and waters. People use what they call phenological indicators. So the way a species is growing, you can tell from one species the stage that it's at what another species is doing at the same time. And people use those signs a lot, especially for fishing. So, for example, up in the Fraser River at Lillooet, the Slatlimuch, uh, at Hatlip, or around the Fraser Canyon there, there's a little buttercup that comes out in the early spring, uh, the sagebrush buttercup. 
and in the Slatlimuk language, it's called spring salmoni. When it comes into bloom, that's the time that the first run of the spring salmon are coming up the Fraser River. So people know when they see that buttercup that it's time to go down to the bottom of the canyon and to catch the first runs of spring salmon. And they say their eyes about the color of that buttercup. And then later on in June, well, the wild rose blooming is, is an indicator for a lot of different things, but that's the time when the first run of sockeye come, comes up the Fraser River and they have a pink line along them that is the same color as the blooming wild rose. So that's another indicator. For the Gitgat uh, nation, the folks at Hartley Bay, they go down to their seaweed camp, Kiel. My friend Helen Clifton, who's at Hartley Bay, one of the elders, she's 96 years old now, I think. She looks at the stingy nettle growing. It grows at the same rate as the seaweed. And so they can tell when the stingy nettle is about that high, the seaweed is ready to pick. It's about that long. And they call the month of May there, Hali La Shlaask. It means the month to gather seaweed. So they don't have to go over to Campania Island where they pick the seaweed to know when it's ready to pick because they just watch the stingy nettle. You're listening to Raven Debriefs. Hear more of the wisdom underpinning Indigenous legal frameworks by subscribing to our show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please spend an extra second to rate us, and we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at info at raventrust.com. Now back to Nancy Turner as she describes what's involved in a seasonal round of food and medicine collection. It involves the stars, it involves looking at the tides and the, the weather patterns and the snow, you know, when the snow up in the mountains is a, at a certain stage, you can tell when it's time to go up to get the mountain foods, all of those things. And people move across the landscape and up, up in elevation according to the seasons as well. So in the, in the seasonal harvesting round that uh, you were asking about, um, on the coast here, the harvesting round tends to go from the main village site in over the winter months when people would be more or less settled in and uh, they, that's when they have their main ceremonies, the winter dances and um, the potlatches. Then about March or so, groups of families will go to certain designated places in their, within the overall territory and start the harvest season. They, the, they would go to the seaweed camps, for example. Um, they would go to the Ulican camps and start their, their harvest at those camps. And then as the season progressed, they might move over to places where there were berries uh, stay there for a couple of months and and pick berries in the vicinity. They might be going to harvest their their cedar bark after the seaweed, and then they they might move up to a higher elevation to pick berries in the summertime, to hunt as well, and maybe fish and 
the higher elevation lakes and camp up there for periods of time. It could be for a, a couple of months. They would be up in the higher elevations. They'd be camping. Uh, the men would be hunting. The women would be digging the root vegetables up there in the mountains and picking berries and drying them. And then they'd come back down in the fall and they'd be doing fishing, the fall fish. Maybe in the summer, they'd be um, also fishing sockeye in the in August and September. And, and then later on, they'd be down uh, fishing the fall fish, the, the chum or dog salmon, which is the, the one that they would smoke the most for winter. They'd be making what they call stink eggs, the fermented salmon eggs, which is a favorite delicious food and picking the berries and then digging the roots from the tidal marsh gardens. That's the main root digging time for uh, the, the clover, the silverweed, the rice root and, and uh, the lupin, the, the roots, root vegetables that they would then tie in bundles and pit, cook in underground pits to enjoy right away or else to, to preserve and dry for winter and store away. The same with the berries, they'd be picking the fall berries, the crab apples, the, the high bush cranberries and the bog cranberries, the late summer and fall foods. In the summer, they'd be getting salal berries and they'd probably dig camas bulbs in the early summer. The winter time would be a time when they'd be mending their nets or making the baskets. So they, they harvest the cedar bark, they harvest the spruce roots, they harvest the, the materials for making baskets, this, the birch bark up in the interior in the summertime or in the spring and just dry it and, and leave it. They, they process it to a certain point and then they leave it. The roots would be bundled, the bark would be tied in bundles. And then in the winter time, that's when you would be making those things that you need for the for the coming season. Same with the reef net. The reef net around here is made with willow bark. The willow is called squala, and the reef net is called squala. And they would get the bark for that. And then in the winter time would be the time when they'd be making the, the reef net for use in around June. And again, they would be looking at the indicators for when it's time to go and set the reef nets. When the blooming of the ocean spray or something like that, that's when they would know to go out to the islands, to Salt Spring, Pender Island. All of the islands had their own reef net sites that were owned by individuals and families. It's kind of scattered, but that's generally how the seasonal round works. So all of these things, they have their time, they have their season, and they have the work that goes with them. So many of the practices around traditional food reveal a stewardship ethos that is at the heart of the legal orders of Indigenous peoples. Here, Nancy shares what she's learned about the harvesting of camas, a high-protein, potato-like tuber that was the staple food in the Pacific Northwest. 
I'll give you the example of Camus. They called it the queen root of the climb. It was the number one root vegetable. That's the way Chris Paul described it from Sartlet. It is the bulb of two different species of camas, one the giant camas and, and the common camas, a little bit smaller. But those bulbs were really, really important for the people of our region around southeastern Vancouver Island and the Gulf Islands. And then again, up in the interior, in the Okanagan area, the camas bulbs were really important. The camas takes about six or seven years to grow to a size that's good for harvesting. If you look at the bulbs, the way they grow, the first year bulbs are like little teardrops. They're, they're just about, you know, half a centimeter or so. And they're right up at the surface of the ground. And then the second year bulbs are a little bigger, like the end of my little finger. And they grow a little bit down. And in the third and fourth year, the bulbs grow elongate. They push their way down into the soil. By the time they're about five or six or seven or eight years old, they're very deep. And so when you're digging the camas bulbs, which is done after the plants have flowered and gone to seed, you use your digging stick, usually made of yew wood with a point on it, it's a, an amazing tool, the digging stick. It's got a sharp point, and it's more of a prying motion. Uh, it's not like a shovel where you're, you're cutting through the soil. You push down into the soil, and you pry back, and you, you harvest a circle of the roots where you know the camas is growing. And while you're harvesting, you're knocking the seeds into the soil that you're digging up. You work your digging stick around in a circle until you've got all of the soil around loosened. And you push it down really deep and you pry back on it and you flip the, the top, the surface soil, over. And down in the hole that you've created are the big bulbs that you're going to harvest. And they're so dense that they can get root bound if you don't selectively harvest them. It's like if you've ever grown irises, you'll know that if you let the irises grow and you don't thin them, pretty soon they'll stop flowering because just, there's not enough nutrients for them. They're out competing each other. The camas is the same. If it gets too dense, it, it won't grow well. And so if you pick out the bulbs that you want, you flip the turf back, and all the younger bulbs are in the top layer. So they're going to continue to grow. And there's hundreds of them. And they'll grow down into the nicely loosened soil that you've created. And you do a bit of weeding of grass and that while you're doing it. And then often you give it a quick burn over top. And that creates a sort of an instant shot of nutrients for the, for the growing plants. A family might claim an area by clearing off the rocks, and so that's their place where they go to dig. And you move along until you get all the bulbs that you need for the year. And then you leave that patch for a few years, and if, when you come back three or four years later, those bulbs are going to have grown 
big enough to harvest. And you repeat the whole thing over again. It's like, it's an amazing system of perpetual harvesting for generations. People have done that, gone to the same place and harvested these bulbs. I once did a little experiment and figured out how many camas bulbs would have been in a potato sack because Chris Paul told me that a family might harvest a 200-pound potato sack full of camas bulbs every year for their use around the year. And I multiplied that out per family, per community, up and down the coast of Vancouver Island. Figured that people were harvesting about 10 million camas bulbs a year from this region. And they were doing it for generation after generation after generation because they had the system in place. They were preparing the soil, they were loosening it by burning over, keeping the brush away, clearing off. It was a system of cultivation that was ironically never recognized. I say conveniently never recognized by the settlers who came and they, they didn't see the Mr. McGregor style of garden where you you know, you clear off everything and you plant rows of annual seeds and then you harvest them. They didn't recognize what people were doing, the way they were sustaining their foods. And they immediately took over those lands. And those were some of the, the best lands for grazing cattle or run, running their pigs and sheep. And so Around Victoria, the Lekwungen peoples were relegated to harvesting camas on the smaller offshore islands because the Victoria area where most of the camas was growing was taken over. So it's really a sad story that this amazing system of production was not recognized and was stopped by the settlers. I'm Susan Smitten, and you're listening to ethnobotanist Nancy Turner, interviewed as part of a three-part series on Indigenous foodways. Here, she talks about how traditional food systems were brutally interrupted by colonialism. The residential schools, in my view, had a lot to do with the dismantling of the food systems because, well, for several reasons. Children were taken away from their families right over the prime growing time and were put into these residential schools where they were fed, I've heard from many people, substandard food and often were, were undernourished. Even I've heard from people like Mary Thomas, my Schwetmuch friend in residential school, she remembered how hungry they always were and the children were made to work in the kitchens, but they weren't allowed to grab any food. And people would sometimes go and just snitch food. But if they got caught, they would get punished and put into closets and things. It was just horrible. And at the same time, at the head table of the dining room, the priests or the, you know, the school officials were eating bacon and eggs and the kids were eating mush. So they were deprived of their 
of their nutritious indigenous food. And at the same time, they were not able to go out with their parents and their grandparents out on the land to learn about this food. And they were taught that the everything that their 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 own culture, their families did was wrong and backward. So often when they came home, they were confused about what they should like and what they should want. The grandparents and parents in their turn were deprived of the ability to teach the children about their traditional food and how to harvest it. The work that uh, my friend Dr. Harriet Kuhnlein has done, uh, doing interviews with people about the changes in food, she did uh, with the Newhalt Nation a series of interviews, the grandmother-mother-daughter interviews. They found something that was quite, I guess, heartrending in a way that not only did the younger generation, the granddaughter generation, not really know much, and this is from the 80s, not really know much about the traditional foods that people had, but their preference was for the market food. The elders, the grandmothers, had not tasted some of that food for a long time, but they longed for it. They really loved it. One time I went out with, um, with Harriet and with the elders and the New Hulk and the youth, and they harvested a cottonwood tree and took the bark off, and everyone was there scraping it off, and the elders were so excited. They hadn't tasted it for a long time, and it was just like, for them, it was like candy, you know, sweet and juicy and just has a taste all its own. So that was... That was really amazing. One of the other reasons about the, the loss of traditional food is many uh, indigenous people got into the wage economy. They were hired on as fishermen or to work in the canneries. So they, during the harvest season, when they would normally be out harvesting their own food, instead they were having to work in the canneries and they weren't able to go out to the camps and the places where they would normally go to get their food. And so that was another way that um, people lost the, the touch with the, their traditional food. And other reasons too, um, the land was taken away where people would harvest especially things like the river estuaries. That's the favorite places to put log sorting areas and logging operations where people would go to get the oolicans, where people would go to get their root vegetables. Those were the places that were taken over by the settlers, either for logging or for their own agricultural purposes or for running their cattle. That's the story of what happened. They're, they're the land of the Tsaudenuk people of the Kinkam Inlet, the, the root gardens were taken over by a settler who, who proceeded to throw away the women's digging sticks and baskets and told them never to come there. 
cut down their crabapple trees, turn their cattle out onto the, onto the rootlands, and that put a stop to it. So it's all of those different things combining that caused this shift. It's also something that's happened globally in a sense, what my friend Harriet calls the nutrition transition, where all of us in a sense have shifted from eating more locally raised and locally grown food to using more marketed food, processed food that's and, and met much of it coming from faraway places. It's a, it's a world trend. Along with the, that trend of the downward spiral of loss of food, there's now been another trend that I'm happy to say has, has taken over. And it started about the time when the residential schools started to be shut down and children started to, to stay at home more and a recognition of the richness of indigenous culture and indigenous languages and how important they are, how important that knowledge is. So there's been a definite revitalization of interest and knowledge that goes along with it. And thank goodness there have been amazing teachers in every community who have experienced that knowledge maybe as as children but enough so that they have been able to bring it back to to teach it to tell the the children about it and some of the traditions have have been maintained throughout like the the harvesting of seaweed the harvesting of herring eggs on kelp and even the ulican so that's been to me one of the most encouraging and exciting things that have happened. I call these people, these wonderful teachers and knowledge holders, I call them cultural refugia because they're sort of like in in an ecological sense, an ecological refugium, an area of land, of an ecosystem that during a time of terrible disturbance, whether it's from a fire, from a flood, from a glacier, whatever, for some reason didn't get destroyed. And then after that disturbance, after the waters recede, after the glacier melts, after the fire, it's those areas that the species there that repopulate the whole area. And that's what I see happening with that cultural knowledge. Those people are just like that. They're the ones that now everyone looks to for bringing back that knowledge, bringing back the language and reconnecting people to their home places and their lands and maintaining those laws, you know, the way that people look after the land the stories, the ceremonies, the, the language and the songs, all of that. Nancy Turner's extraordinary contribution is to show the patterns that connect ecosystems, language, and people. One example, 
is the Grease Trails that were established to trade prized oolican oil from the B.C. coast to the interior. So we asked Nancy Turner about other internation exchanges that shaped the human geography of these lands and waters. There's always been this exchange, and, and sometimes uh, it comes through intermarriage as well because especially around the Salish area, around the Salish Sea, women would often marry outside of their own community. Sometimes a, a Cowichan woman would marry a Squamish man, for example, or somebody might marry into, up into the interior. So with those family ties and connections all over the place, like a spider web, those create the, the pathways for people to bring their food or their knowledge or their language. And children are often raised with the traditions of both communities. So they, they might speak both languages. For example, my friend Christopher Paul from Sartlip, he was an example of that. His mother was Cowichan. So he could speak Holkamitnam as well as Sanchathan, these two languages that are related but not the same, sort of like French and Spanish, say. And so with those traditions of going back and forth, trade went, went with those all the time. There were consistent trade routes, as you mentioned, the, the Greece trails. Those represented long-term connections between the coast and the interior. There were other trails that went across Vancouver Island from the Salish and Erquakwakwak areas to the New Channel side, again, for trade and for communication. The Greece trails are a good example. The Greece, Ulican Greece, was a very rich, uh, nutritious food that was used a lot on the coast. They ca sometimes call it gold. But it wasn't just a one-way street. Just as an example, the Gitkat people at, at Hartley Bay, they didn't have access to the Ulican runs. But they had what my friend Helen would say, the best seaweed on the coast. Although the, the Heltzuk might disagree with that and the Haida might disagree with that. But anyways, they had wonderful seaweed. And they looked after that seaweed just like a garden. They used the same kind of selective harvesting of the seaweed, which has the capacity to grow from a little bit left over when you pull it off the rock. It will grow into a second harvest even within a month. So they would get the first harvest of seaweed and they'd dry it and then they'd go up to Kitimat. They, they'd take their, their seaweed up there and, and the Kitimat people would give them their oolican grease. They'd also get things from the interior like soap berries. And sometimes they got the grease from the Niska as well, the Nass River. And the oolican the grease from the Kitimat was different from the oolican the grease from the Nass. And they had their own, each had their own value. And sometimes they would get smoked oolicans as well in exchange for seaweed. And then they'd get soap berries and they'd get Saskatoon berries and some of the interior goods would come out to the coast. 
on Haida Gwaii, they didn't have soap berries growing. So their soap berries were all traded onto the island. And you can tell from the names of the soap berries where they came from. The Masset Haida name for soap berries, Hokutlit, comes from the Tlingit. And the Skidigat Haida, Ash-ish, comes from uh, Tsimsian. So you can tell two different trade routes coming for soap berries, one from the east and one from the northeast that is reflected in, in those names. The names are actually a really good proxy for trade because often when you trade something, you take the name that comes with it. So for example, coffee is an Arabic word. In English, we, we say coffee, but it comes from Arabic. When you borrow something or trade something from somewhere else, you use the name that it comes with. And so you can tell these trade routes just by looking at what words are similar uh, across language families, like with soapberry. Klina, the, the, the word for Greece, you know there's a little village called Klina Klin up way up the valley from Bellacula. And it's named after Greece. It's on the Greece Trail and it's called Klina Klin. There's a plant called Kachmin, the wild celery, that its seeds are really important and they're used as a trade item. They're a, a medicine for colds and coughs and and so Kachmin is, is a name that's used not only in the Salishan languages, but also in Kwakwala, because the Kwakwakawak people also used it and traded for it from the Salish. So there are lots of examples like that. To end our talk, we asked Nancy to share her vision for the restoration of traditional foodways. Here is her parting wisdom. What I'd like to see is, is something that I see now in, in many ways, but a celebration a, and a recognition of the importance of diversity in our food and diversity in culture and language. And I think that's essential for sustaining our lands. There's so much knowledge and wisdom in what indigenous people know and are willing to teach. We're finally starting to pay some attention to this really rich and important knowledge. There's a place for all knowledge systems and we need all the knowledge and wisdom that we have in the world to be able to change the way we're treating the world and, and to make ourselves and our, our cultures more sustainable, to look after the other species that are our, our relatives in the world. But a lot of this we can learn from people who've been doing and living in one place sustainably for thousands of years. And it's time that we paid more attention to those people and recognized their knowledge as being really, really important.
Today, you've heard renowned ethnobotanist Nancy Turner share stories from countless Indigenous knowledge keepers, including Chris Paul, Helen Clifton, and Mary Thomas. Music was by Oka, and I'm your host, Susan Smitten. Today's episode was produced by Andrea Paul Fromit. To learn more about how Raven supports Indigenous people's access to justice, visit raventrust.com. Thanks for lending us your ear. 